Amen, amen. Thank you, worship team. That was awesome. How we doing, 11-15? We doing all right? Hey, that was, that was a good start. I might as well just keep it on going, right? <laughs> all righty, all righty. For those of you who are joining us for your first time, or your first time in a long time, or you've just been here a while because we haven't gotten rid of you somehow, welcome. We are starting a brand new sermon series entitled Divergent. Are you guys excited? Woo! Woo! Book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going Old Testament on you. Hey, did you know out of the 8,000 plus verses in the New Testament, over 2,400 of them either refer or allude to or directly quote the Old Testament? So if you don't understand the Old Testament, there's no possible way you can understand the New Testament. So we figured we'd do a little Old Testament uh, book for you. We're going through the first six chapters, as Jim said earlier. Today I am privileged with the opportunity to preach Daniel chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. I'm not sure where it is, so don't ask me. I just pulled it up on my phone. Nonetheless, uh, as an introduction, I wanted to ask this question. It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but you can if you'd like. Has anyone here ever had to make an important decision? And I'm not talking just any decision. I'm talking about a decision that could change the course of your life. If you've lived long enough, most of us have already been there before, usually in our high school years. We've all had to make those decisions. What am I going to do with my life? What career should I pursue? But perhaps there's even a more important decision to make. Some of you may be in that stage right here and right now in this room. Perhaps there's a decision on your plate. And perhaps there's a decision on your plate you didn't even know about before you walked in the store. And I hope that through the reading of our word today, we can get to that. So we'll come back to that. But I wanted to first explain the word divergent because it's a little bit ambiguous. If you, I don't know if a lot of you know the, the actual technical term of what divergent means. It has no play on that new movie or book. So don't think that this is tied into that. But the word divergent is a word that I would say should describe every Christian that you meet. Divergent means tending to be different or develop in different directions. It's a moving or extending in different directions from a common point. I've always wondered why it, it is so that most Christians look, talk, act just like everyone else around them. We respond to situations of stress, circumstances of trial with the same amount of struggle as someone who doesn't know the peace that can be found in Jesus Christ. Our attitude and character, though they're meant to literally shine like stars against this perverse generation, as it says in Philippians, instead it just blends in. It's as if we're not different at all. And so our heart cry, my heart cry, not just for this message today, but for the message of the whole book of Daniel is that we might be a people, we might be Christians that are no longer conformed by, to the world, but instead being transformed through the word. That's what I want to get to here. Daniel is a very important book. As a matter of fact, Daniel is to the Old Testament quite much like the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. It's very apocalyptic, if you will. It's full of prophecy. Now, as you know, we're only covering the six, first six chapters of Daniel. That has no prophecy in it, really. That is more historical literature. 
that's chapters 1 through 6, the last chapters 7 through 12 are what deal with the prophecy. And we're not dealing with those in length, but I do want to cover them before we begin verses or chapters 1 through 6. So I want to cover those for you a little bit here. The book of Daniel is important because it's one of the most one, one of the more vigorously attacked books in the Old Testament, not only by skeptics, but also by Bible scholars. Many would date this book much later in history due to its prophetic accuracy. There are very specific events in the book of Daniel that were foreseen by him that accurately predict what actually happened in history. Some good examples of this include the fall, the rise and the fall of the Mede Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Kingdom of Alexander the Great, and the Roman Empire, all found in the book of Daniel. And because it's so accurate, most scholars say there's no, there is absolutely no way Daniel actually prophesied those until and, and somebody wrote it afterwards because it's just too accurate. That's what they would do. But what's so strange is there's a Jewish historian who was not a Christian. His name was Josephus, and he tells a tale of Alexander the Great's visit to Jerusalem. He had just conquered many towns and cities and villages and nations around Jerusalem, and it brought to attention his presence to Jerusalem themselves, and they begin to think, what should we do? Because we know we're about to be attacked. And so the high priest gets his crew together. His name is Jaduah. And they decide, hey, let's go get in front of this. Let's go approach him. And so Jaduah and some of his other priests visit Alexander themselves. This was in 332 B.C. Upon their arrival, they invited Alexander to go with them back to Jerusalem. And so Alexander accepts their, their, accepts their invite. They go to the temple. They sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. And then through the scriptures, Jaduah shows Alexander the Great that he has actually been prophesied over and that he will actually rule the world. And so from the book of Daniel is the text that the Jaduah uses to show the successful conquest of the Greek empire. That's an amazing feat. And what's so cool is most people who would approach Alexander, instead of negotiating with them, Alexander the Great would just kill them. But in this case, he goes with them because he had saw them in a dream before that day. And a voice said to him in his dream, if you want to be successful, if you want to continue to have a great conquest, you need to go wherever they say you need to go. And so they followed him. They, he followed them back to Jerusalem to see that he was actually a fulfillment of Scripture in the Old Testament. Very cool facts. Also, details of Daniel's prophecy, specifically in chapter 11, also predict the occurrence of a man, historically proven man to exist, named Antiochus Epiphanes, who desecrated the temple of God through a sacrifice of a pig. He spells it out plain and simple. And it actually truly did happen, which is why most scholars and skeptics say the book has to be written after these events had occur occurred because they're so accurate. There's no way that somebody predicted that beforehand. But nonetheless, we all know the truth. Daniel was written much earlier than that, actually about 250 years before any of these events occurred. Uh, there's a quote by E.B. Pusey which says this, The book of Daniel is especially fitted to be the battleground between faith and unbelief because it admits no halfway measures. Either it is absolutely divine or it's an imposter. And so 
What I want for us to do today is stand and read the Word of God together. I'll give you a little more background information before we get into my points. But if you want to stand, this is Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We'll read the 21 verses found in Daniel 1, and then you can sit for the rest of our time. Unless you want to stand and clap and give a hand to the Lord, that's fine with me. Anyway, this is what the, this is what the Word of God says in Daniel 1, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand. Sounds like me and Jim, by the way. <laughs> Qualified to serve the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief uh, official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Then Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat of the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the, the guard took away their choice food and wine and they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kind. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of God. May it go forth. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the time we have to spend in your word today. God, I just pray that as we dive into the book of Daniel, that you would just enlighten our hearts and our minds and how we can be a people that could be described with the using the word divergent, that we could develop in a different way. Father, that we could shine bright in the midst of this dark generation. God, would you help us not respond the way the world responds, but help us be able to see what you'd have us to see. And we're so grateful for how none of this is possible without your son, Jesus Christ. We, 
We thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection, God. And we thank you for the spirit that you sent through that sacrifice. And we pray that we, we know that we can't manipulate your spirit, Father, but we can only ask. And so, Father, we in union ask for your spirit to be here, to come be our teacher and to mold us into the men and women you want us to be. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Let's go back to verses 1 through 5. I'll give you a little more background information. I want to help you guys understand where we are within the timeline of Israel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So at this point in time within the history of Israel, the nation is actually split into two. There are the northern kingdom and also the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is made up of ten tribes. And the southern kingdom is made up of two tribes, okay? So the two tribes in the southern kingdom, their names were Judah and Benjamin. The reason they're called Judah in this passage, it says here in verse 2, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. The reason it calls him Judah and not the southern kingdom is because Judah was the bigger of the two tribes, and therefore they just named it Judah. It has nothing to do with anything else. That's how they named it. So... To give you a little bit more context, the northern kingdom of the ten tribes had already been in captivity to Assyria for about a hundred years. And what's so cool is, to kind of give you guys a little debrief on the prophetic books in general, the northern kingdom captivity was actually prophesied by Isaiah to the northern kingdom. And what's even cooler is this Southern kingdom captivity, which is what's taking place here in Daniel chapter 1, was prophesied by Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, against them. And so the Babylonians overtook Judah in three separate waves. I, I know this is a lot of information, but I hope that it helps understand that this, is, this isn't just stuff we read. This is actual true historical things. Things like this have actually happened. You can prove them. You can look back in history and see that they actually happened. So the Babylonians overtook Judah in three separate ways. First off, their very first attack was 605 B.C., probably the attack that they're talking about here in the first five verses. This is when Daniel and his company would have been taken from the nobility. And then some years later, 597 B.C., they go in and they besiege it again. This is when the prophet Ezekiel is taken into captivity. And then they go again back in 586 B.C., by the way, 586 B.C., a very important date for the nation of Israel because that was the fall of Jerusalem. And of course, they would not rebuild the temple for another 70 years. But this is how it worked. Whenever a kingdom would come conquer another kingdom, what they would do is they'd take the cream of the crop. They would take all the best, all the smartest people. They'd take the gym and the wills of the groups and they'd say, hey, let's train them up. For three years, right? Three years they would be in this thing. And what would happen is they would, they would use this system to kind of take what they used to know and transfer and what they want them to know and how they wanted them to function within that kingdom. And what I think is so funny is really within the story of Daniel, it's a very contemporary story because we know when we as Christians accept Christ, we are now in some sort of way exiles, if you will. We're no longer we're no longer, we're in the world, yes, but we're no longer of the world. And so we see this clash. We understand, we understand what it means for these, for these people to go into a place where they no longer feel welcome. They feel alienated. They feel as if they're different because that's exactly what happens when we accept Christ. And so I think what's really awesome is that within this 
education, if you will, of the Babylonians, there are three cycles. If you're a note taker, these are the three points if you want. Three cycles of Babylonian brainwash that are used to try to take Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and help and, and force them into, conform them into a specific way that they wanted them to live. And what's so funny is, is the enemy that we have here today in this room, he isn't clever. He's been using the same old tricks for thousands of years. And so in these three cycles of Babylonian brainwash, he still uses for us here today. And I hope that I can bring those out for you. And I hope that you can see them in your own lives. So three cycles of Babylonian brainwash the enemy still uses today. The first one is our assumptions. Our assumptions. Let's go to the next uh, verse there. Uh, Verses four and five. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Here's where I want to put our focus. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So the first cycle of brainwash, when they bring these people in from surrounding nations, they'd put them through the school, and the first thing that they would begin to attack is their assumptions, how they thought. So they come in and they're taught a new worldview their view of man, their view of God, their view of sin, their view of the afterlife, would have all been in direct opposition of what they learned as Jews growing up. As a matter of fact, due to some archaeological evidence presented by a biblical scholar named Trimper Longman III, he actually found writings of what they would have studied called the Babylonian art of divination. So within the king's service, one of the most important things for them to know how to do or what to do was to be able to interpret dreams, was to be able to, in some way, interpret unusual things. So they would take classes and they would learn how to make predictions by looking at terrestrial and celestial phenomenon. They would even go so far as to examine sheep livers because they believed that it was through those omens, those were, omens were the primary way by which the gods revealed their will and intentions in their time in Mesopotamia, which is where they are, by the way. This is very important. I know it sounds like just a lot of rubber, but it's very important considering the role that this plays later on in this book. This was the main occupation, if you will. This was their main function. The reason they went to this school, the reason they were brain, brainwashed, if you will, is so that they could discern the will of God through the way that they thought that they could see the will of God. And so the first thing they do is they attack their assumptions, how we think. Do you guys not notice in your own life how the enemy does that for you? The first thing, see, that's what the enemy does in our own lives. He, when we find ourselves at being Christians and we're going through this life and we're trying to live for Christ, what happens first, the first battleground we come to is, is the enemy begins to to sow seeds of doubt and unbelief in our lives of what we're thinking. What, what, how is it that bad things happen to good people? How is there a loving God, yet He sends people to hell for eternity for their sins? It, he begins to, to work on our assumptions and how we think, and He begins to, to creep into our minds, and He begins to have a foothold in our lives. And so that's the first cycle of Babylonian brainwash, if you will, in our own lives. Second is our appetite. Second is our appetite. If you want to go to verses 6 through 8, it says, um, Among those were chosen, 
some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, the chief official gave them new names. We'll talk about it a little, a little bit. And then verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So first cycle of Babylonian brainwash is our assumptions, how we think. Number two is our appetite, what we consume. There were two things wrong with the food of the king's table. First off, it was unclean in relation to the Mosaic law. The word defiled there was a term used for religious defilement. And to eat it would have been disobeying God's commands. Also, the second thing wrong with the food is it was offered to idols before it was eaten. So a part of their worship for their gods is that you would come into the temple, you'd bring them food, all kinds of choice foods, whether it be bread or milk or meat, you know, get big old steak on there. They would put all this food there, and then obviously the gods would not eat it because they weren't real, right? So what they would do is they would take that food and they'd bring it to the king's table, and they would use that food to feed these people. And so uh, food, food offered, food sacrificed to idols is a big deal within this culture. As a matter of fact, it's so big, the Apostle Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians 8, if you want to look at that later. Food offered as sacrifice to idols. And so whatever, whatever it was, that would have been complete direct opposition of the will of God. And so that's the two things wrong here. So what does that look like for us? The enemy comes in, he attacks our assumptions, he attacks how we think, he sows seeds of doubt and unbelief. And then what happens is when we allow those seeds of unbelief and doubt grab root, he begins to feed us what he wants us to eat instead of us blocking those things out so we begin to 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 read things that cause more doubt we begin to to listen to people in our lives that instead of feeding our faith it feeds our flesh and we begin to to believe lies we we begin we literally begin to doubt the things we know to be true we literally begin to doubt the things we know to be true and so what happens is is the enemy creeps in and he begins to brainwash us by feeding hey listen some of us we walk around, you're asking, well, he's not really sees it that way. You know what? As a matter of fact, your, the, the lust of your eyes is a way the enemy feeds you. When you're looking at that woman who walks by a little too long, you linger a little too long on a thought that you shouldn't be lingering on. Instead of taking that thought and making it captive to Christ and throwing it out, we decide to, to, to consume it a little bit more. We enjoy it in some sense. And so what happens is, in this cycle of brainwashing, the first thing is that the enemy comes in and he begins to mess with our thoughts, how we're thinking, the things that we assume to be true, and we begin to doubt. And then he says, hey, not only, not only that, but I'm about to, I'm about to begin to water those, those seeds of doubt. And he does that by what you consume. What, what are you letting in today through your ear gate and your eye gate? Maybe it's a TV show that you're watching that you shouldn't be watching. I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe it's a relationship. That, that's a way we get... That's, how, that's a way the enemy can get us to consume what he wants us to consume, a, an unhealthy relationship. There's so many things that the enemy can use. And that's exactly what happens. And what begins to happen is once he attacks, he attacks our assumptions and how we think, once he, he attacks our appetite and we begin to crave the things of the flesh instead of the things of the spirit, then he begins to attack our authority. And verse, uh, that's our point number three, authority in verses six through eight here. Catch this. What does it say? It's on the screen already. Among those who were chosen, some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Catch this. Verse 7. This is big. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, 
the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. See, what happens is, is we don't look at it, we see this and we don't really think, oh, but if we look at the names, this is a big deal because look at this, Daniel, Daniel, the name Daniel literally means God is my judge. He changes his name to Belshazzar. May Baal protect his life. And then Mishael, which means who is like God, gets changed to Meshach, which means who is like Aku, another god of the Babylonians. Hananiah, which means Jehovah is gracious, is now turned from Shadrach. Aku is exalted. Azariah, Jehovah is my helper, switched to Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo, Nebo yet another god of Babylon. And so what happens is, is that's exactly how the enemy works. See, I don't know if you guys know this, but the, God in heaven has a name for you. Did you know that? He wants to speak life over you. These names weren't just names because, oh, I think Daniel's a cool name. No, back in the Hebrew society, the reason they named people is to remind them of their God. They literally were named something that literally every time you spoke over them, it was a reminder to them that, yes, God is my just. Yes, Jehovah is gracious. Who is like my God? And the enemy says, hey, listen, just as much as God has a name for you, so does the enemy. And the enemy begins, once we allow him in through our assumptions and how we think, once we allow him in through our appetite and what we consume, he begins to attack the authority in our lives. And he begins to make us question who actually has control here. And we begin to buy into the names that he gives us. And that's where it begins to get very dangerous. And then he has rule and reign in our hearts. That's exactly the digression, if you will, of the three cycles of the Babylonian brainwash. Assumptions, appetite, and authority. But what I love, if you were to ask me, Will, what is the most important verse in all the book of Daniel? I would point it to this one here, verse 8. Now, remember verse 7. He gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, right? But what does verse 8 say? But Daniel. See, what I love about Daniel what I love about Daniel is he, didn't, he refused to believe what the enemy wanted him to believe. Instead, he, wanted to, he, he chose to remember Daniel. And that's exactly the way it's got to be for us. In the midst of those situations, we have to be a people. This is, this is a big butt of the Bible, if you will. Kind of like in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, We are dead in our sins and trespasses, but God being rich in mercy. This is just as important. Daniel chose to remember his identity in Christ and he did not believe in the name the world wanted to give him. He chose not to be conformed by the world, but he he chose to be transformed by the word of God that spoke over him his whole life. This is an important decision to make. Hey, listen, catch this. He was probably from the ages, between the ages of 13 to 17 years old. He's a young kid. We got any high schoolers in here? Raise your hand, high schoolers. Oh, we got one. Got two? Hey, listen, this, I want you to pay attention to this. This is important. I should preach this one at Switch because it's just so perfect. But nonetheless, this, this is a big deal. This, for him, Daniel, I think this was his most significant and life-forming decision he ever made, is to choose but Daniel. And this seems like a small matter, right? I mean, think about it. It's like, Yo, dude, I'm living in this random country. I got exiled. They stole me from my house. I don't have my family with me. I mean, the last thing I'm thinking about is what I'm eating. Like, right? Like, I'll just eat whatever you give me, I guess. I mean, I mean, this, it seems like a small matter to me. It seems like it's not that big of a deal what I'm eating, right? I mean, what? It's like, but here's the thing. 
It was a small matter, yes, but that's the point. See, in the Christian life, our great victories are decided by the small matters. Listen, don't get me wrong. The big things are sure to come, but they're of lesser value in the kingdom. This is where the decisions to live a holy life are made, in the small things. The small things. You know, it's so funny to me. It's so funny to me, right? Is anybody here ever just cry out to God, just say, you know what, God, I just want more. I want, I don't know. As a matter of fact, sometimes I say that and I don't even know what I want more of. It's not that I want more money or more things. God, I want more of you. I want more of your rule and reign in my heart. God, I want more. And it, listen, if we're all honest with ourselves, we all want more. But what I think is so funny is, is God wants to say to someone here in this room today, hey, guess what? If you want more, be faithful with the little that you have. More will come. More will come. See, what seems like nothing in your eyes could be the biggest thing in God's eyes. It could mean everything for him. What seems like nothing in your eyes could mean everything in the eyes of God. And it's so funny because we ask God for more and he's saying, hey, listen, 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 listen. If you want more, sure, absolutely. But you have to be faithful. It reminds me of Luke 16, verse 10, where it says this. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. God, I want more. And he's saying, hey, listen, I'd love to give you more, but you're compromising. The Christian life is not a life of compromise. We've compromised too long. That's the issue. If you were to say, Will, what's, the, what's wrong with the Christian church today? What's wrong with it? What's the one word? The word for me is compromise. And God, the God in heaven says, hey, listen, if you want to go from the little that you have to much, stop compromising. There's no more compromise. There's no room for that in my kingdom. We don't compromise. Someone here in this room today, God is saying, I want to give you something more, but you're compromising. I need to, I need to see you no longer compromise. You've got to make a decision. You've got to be faithful with the small things. Very small things. They seem small to us, but to God they mean everything. And what I love about this is this, the passage doesn't stop here. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And what I love is that it shows us if we can be a people who choose not to compromise, if we can be a people who choose to follow God and all of his commandments without compromising at all, he shows us what happens. What happens when we don't compromise? Verses 9 through 14. What happens when we don't? If we choose to follow the Lord God with all that we can, as much as humanly possible, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, what happens? Well, verse 9, And now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. What happens when we don't compromise? We gain the favor of God. Hey, listen. Did you know? Fun fact. There's a difference between the grace of God and the favor of God. All right, first off, let's talk about the grace of God. This grace of God is over here, and the favor of God is over there. Grace of God. Grace of God is something we can't earn, right? Like, by God's grace, I have been saved through faith. I have done nothing to deserve being made right in the eyes of God through Jesus' blood. Hey, listen, as soon as you can earn something, it's no longer grace, because that's what makes grace grace. Grace is free. Grace is received. You don't, grace is grace. You know what I'm saying? I don't have to say any more than that. But here, you know what? Grace is amazing. 
Right? We sang about it before this. Um, there is an amazing grace on all of our lives to be made right in the eyes of God. Somehow, eternal our eternal destiny is decided by that yes and amen. But guess what? The Lord says, hey, listen, I don't know why you dip your foot in that pool, but you won't dip your foot in the other. The Lord doesn't want just grace in your life. I live a life of grace. I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm sorry I messed up, but I'm under God's grace. You know what? That's, it's just really, if you ask me, those are just excuses because we keep falling. And what God says is, listen, I know you... I have a great grace. I have an amazing grace. My grace does cover. It is sufficient, but I want you to move towards the favor of God. See, see what happens is God says, if you walk in obedience to me, step by step, guess what? Not only do you get the grace of God, amen, but you also get the favor of God. See, there's a difference there. You don't always get the favor. You always get the grace because guess what? What does grace mean? I don't earn it. I always have the grace, but not, not, here's the issue. So many Christians just settle for just over here. And don't get me wrong. This is amazing. What's happening here is so amazing. But God says, I want to do something so much more. You want more? More's over there. All you have to do is walk in obedience. All you have to do is take a step. All you have to do is not compromise. The bridge is no compromise. As soon as we compromise, it's out. It's out of the picture. Favor is no longer there. He wants to give you grace. Amen. Grace you don't deserve, but he also wants you to, he wants to bless your obedience. Did you know that? God wants to bless you. He wants to bless you here in this room today. And he's saying, listen, the only way to get the favor of God, favor can be earned. Okay. Favor can be earned. Don't set, I sound bad when I say don't settle for grace because you're not settling. This is some good stuff over here. This is like my mom's mac and cheese. And that's like my wife's dirt cake. I want both. You know what I'm saying? Like, give me both of that. All right. Amen. Okay. I thought I'd throw that in there because I'm getting probably both of those today. So, <laughs> hello, birthday, lunch. Okay, so, huge. When we don't compromise, we gain the favor of God. Not only do we gain the favor of God, but in verses 15 through 17, which will be up on the screen, we grow in the wisdom of God. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. That's what the scripture says. And it's so funny about wisdom is I think wisdom should be the one attribute all Christians have. Literally, James 1, 5 says, if any of you should lack wisdom, he should ask God who gives without finding fault. If you're lacking in discernment and wisdom, it's because you ain't asking. Or, and, and what I love about that is that wisdom is so available. As a matter of fact, if you read the book of Proverbs, you, you read the book of Proverbs, it talks about Lady Lust, and it talks about how she's at the, every street corner, she's at the top of the mountain shouting out, she's at the city gates, which was a place to hang out back in the day, it's like going to Sonic with those high schoolers, it was, it was a place to be, Lady Lust is everywhere, waiting to devour us, right, but did you know, if you read, that's in Proverbs 6 and 7, but if you read Proverbs chapter 8, it says, hey, guess what, Lady Wisdom, she's also at the gate of the city. She's also at every street corner. She's also at her house. She's on top of the mountain calling out. Wisdom is so readily available to you. God wants you to have it. God wants you to have it. Oh, by the way, I got to talk about this before I continue. Um, I want you guys to pray for me. Um, you can pray for my wife because she'll be dealing with me a lot, but I'm actually, I thought it was very ironic. Today is October 6th. And I'm preaching on Daniel chapter 1. And our worship, I keep saying worship every time. Our leadership retreat, because there's going to be a lot of worship. Um, our leadership retreat is October 16th. And so I noticed that um, they were tested for 10 days. So I'm going to do a Daniel fast from now until our... So if y'all see me next Sunday and I am not a nice guy, you understand why. 
I'm fighting off a demon. You know what I'm saying? Get it off my back. So if you guys want to join me in the 10-day fast starting tomorrow, that's right, I'm getting that dirt cake and that macaroni and cheese today. But uh, if y'all want to start with me, I start tomorrow. Fruits and vegetables, any kind of way you can get them. Stay away from processed foods, no meats, no dairies, no everything good. Get away, just throw it out. So uh, pray for me as I do that. I just want to be, I just want to be spiritually sharp for this, um, for this uh, next. I just want to really pray and, and get spiritually ready for this. So uh, if y'all want to join me, I thought I'd just throw that out there and let you know. UltimateDanielFast.com has all of the requirements and guidelines. Would love for y'all to do it with me so I don't, you know, misery loves company nonetheless. So <laughs> come join me. All right, so what happens when we don't compromise? We gain the favor of God, we grow in the wisdom of God, and lastly, verses 18 through 21, we grasp the power of God. We grasp the power of God. The king talked with him, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Remember, their main task, their main duty was to interpret dreams, was to look at the stars, was to look at all the things around them and be able to figure out the will and intention of God. And because they were people who did not compromise, if, and wait till we get to the stories. But there are so many awesome stories in the book of Daniel where that occurs because he chose not to compromise. So in conclusion, I just want us to circle back to where we began. I forgot to tell you guys the name of my sermon, but I called it Decisions, Decisions. Because I think for some of us, perhaps when you came in, you didn't realize that you too had an important decision to make. A decision that could affect the trajectory of the rest of your life. So as we pray, I want us to, I want to pose a question as we bow our head and close our eyes. I think the decision that has to be made for some here in this room is, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? It's time to stop compromising. Perhaps today is the day you nail it down. Aren't you tired of blending in? Tired of the same old thing over and over? Don't you think it's time for you to deviate from the social norm? Time to decide to be divergent? Time to develop in a different direction that you are headed? Time to try something new? No holding back, no reservations, no compromise. Father, I want to pray for those here in this room that the enemy is attacking what they know. Father, as the enemy attacks our assumptions, God, I just pray that we could throw out any seeds of unbelief and doubt, God. That we would notice the enemy's tactics. He's not smart. He's not clever. This is old news. So God, help us just be able to, to wash that out. God, I also want to pray for those who are dealing with the enemy attacking their appetite. Father, what we're consuming is not in line with your will. So Father, help us be able to expose ourselves to things that give you honor, whether it be the reading of your word or prayer or listening to sermons throughout the week or listening to podcasts that bring honor to you.
God, help us in what we're consuming. Help us with our appetite. I also want to pray for those who the enemy has already gotten in, has already questioned us, already made us wonder about the authority in our lives. God, I pray that here in this room today, somebody could rediscover their identity in Christ. That you have made them a whole. You have made them new. When you see them from heaven, you look down, you don't see their mess-ups, you don't see their sin, you don't see their iniquity, you don't see the chasm, you see perfection because of your son Jesus. We're grateful for that today. Father, I want to pray that you'd help us be faithful with the small things. God, we all want more. I want it. You want it. We all want it. And God, what's so crazy is that just as we we want more, so do you. You want more for us. You want more than grace. You want favor. You want blessing on our lives. So God, I just pray for those here in the room that they would just stay faithful in the small things and know that if we're faithful in a little, we will be faithful in much. God. And last but not least, I just want to pray for someone here in this room today. Maybe somebody listening online, God. Maybe that you have struck a heartstring with them, God. And today's the day that they nail it down. Today's the day that they make the decision. God, they have resolved in their heart, just as Daniel did, to no longer defile themselves of this world. God, we're all in exile. God, I pray that if if that's them, if you're leading them that, that they would just pray with me here today. Say something like this, Father in heaven, I'm so sorry for the sin that separates us. The sin in my heart, the sin in my life, but I'm so grateful today for Jesus and that his death on the cross pays for that. I accept his death by faith, knowing that it's made me whole with you again. It's made me right with you. I can have a relationship with you again. Thank you for not leaving me here in my sin. Thank you for reaching out through your son, Jesus. If you prayed that prayer today, or if you're dealing with something that I've been talking about, I want you to know that Decided Church has a new ministry. Uh, We have a prayer team for you. So if you want to continue to talk, if you want to continue to ask questions, or even if you just want prayer, we have a team in the back waiting for you to pray for you. So if you feel so called or so led during this closing prayer or during this last song, please use that. We want to make that available to you. We don't want this to, to just be a moment that stops. We want it to be we want it to be real for you. We want to help you in your walk. Father in heaven, we're so grateful. God, I pray that the word divergent would be something that characterizes each and every one of us. God, I pray that you would just help us when the enemy attacks our assumptions. Father, would you help us break the cycle of the Babylonian brainwash? Would you help us not compromise? Father, we're tired of compromising. Compromising has got us nowhere. We're just in the same old rut. So Father, help us just continually to make the decision to live all for you. God, Jesus, we want you and nothing else. Nothing else matters. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.